0: Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I am Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. And just before we begin the show, I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. We have someone very impressive with us when it comes to healthcare tech and biotechnology, co-founder and director of Sarah's Health, in addition to someone who is extremely passionate about the arts, a multiple Tony Award winner and Broadway producer, and whom I know personally as well. So, Anita Waxman, it's so nice to have you on the show. It's such an honor to be interviewing you.
1: Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be interviewed by you.
0: Thanks. Thanks. So let's just dive into your professional career in this health tech field. So many many years ago, I
1: um, I think I think you're talking to a very frustrated woman who always wanted to be a doctor, and I didn't go. I didn't become an MD. I became a. My studies are in Russian literature, so I can't put far away from the MD, but um, I've always loved science. So back in the late 70s, I went into and started my first company uh, in executive search and consulting um, in something called biotech. And of course, at that point, it was non-existent in the mid 70s. Um, But I loved it. And I worked with some of the great companies today when they were just startups, like a company called Genentech. Um, and I was you know, very lucky to work with them and work worldwide with them. Uh, I then was co-founder and partner in a company called Diasonics, uh, where we invented and developed diagnostic and real-time ultrasound and introduced MRI to market and that was that was an amazing turn in the field of medical electronics it was just it was an extraordinary experience to see a baby move inside the woman's tummy to be able to look at brain and see MS it was just and we worked in that with that business for about 12 years ultimately it was it went public and then it was sold to to GE so today if anyone has a MRI or an ultrasound with a GE machine that was our company and my third company that I started was the first ever managemental mental health care company it was at the time called American Biodyne. it's now no we we took it public we sold to Merck we did a leverage buyout on it and now it is what is known as Magellan Behavioral is the company I started with my former therapist so That was kind of after many, many years, that was uh, my three larger experiences in starting companies and exiting companies. And my favorite one was a company, I was on the board of a company called SOS International, which is the um, medically stocked airplanes. It's a reinsurance company that if you're sick in a foreign country, the plane will pick you up, take care of you and get you to proper health care. And my responsibility there was to help to develop an open um, Western medical uh, clinics in third world emerging countries. So that was most fun because at that point, Francesca, Russia was a third world. And one of the first uh, clinics that we opened was in Moscow, believe it or not, in 1992, all the way back. I don't think you were born yet.
0: Yeah, that's exactly
1: when I was born. <laughs> it was so you were just born anyway. That was in my early days, and I've just stayed in the healthcare field. I semi-retired and just sort of um, developed theatrical productions because that's my passion, and then came back into the field with this company, with Saris, in two thousand, basically two thousand twelve, to see how I could help. Uh, in the world of the Affordable Care Act because I knew that it would have consequences, I guess is the best word, for hospitals and doctors and physicians and patients, especially patients. And so that's when Saris was born. And now, now it's a full-fledged company growing, hopefully forever. We'll see. And um, we're working in the field of technology that is the communication tool and a patient monitoring HIPAA-compliant social network for patients and doctors and communication.
0: Wow. So you've really yeah. adopted over the years and went in whatever was relevant at the time. And you were part of revolutionary medical technology that everyone uses today. One of the
1: great experiences, and I'm very humble about this because it was a gift that was granted to me. One of my great experiences that with each modality that I worked in in healthcare, it was a non-existent modality and I was able to be a part of the change to that modality. For example, biotechnology. There were three people at um, Genentech when I first started working with them and of course it's now a multi-billion dollar company. And um, when we did ultrasound, at that point, it was a static picture, more like an x-ray, <clears throat> and we brought real time to it. And I think that we were one of the first people to ever see movement inside the stomach. So we really knew that that baby was alive. I saw the, the thumb go into a mouth when nobody really had seen it. That was. God, that's humbling. It makes you believe in God, I'll tell you. So it was always kind of, we were always on, and I was always on the, the verge of new technologies for healthcare, And it was a gift. I just feel like I was granted a gift in that.
0: It's just fascinating because how does someone get into this? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. When I
1: started, it was um, in the 70s, so life was a little easier not easier for women by the way but easier to go into the direction you wanted to go into i was a single parent at the time and tried to get a loan to start my own company which was this executive search firm and no one would give a single divorced woman with two children alone, even though I had property, I had a house, they wouldn't give it to me. So I mortgaged my property, my house, with beneficial finance in 1977 for 18% interest and opened a company and I went from there. So how do you get into it today? I don't know. It's hard. Um, Education is so important and um, persistence Um, is very important. And and sadly, in today's world, probably an advanced degree is even more important.
0: Yes, things have definitely changed. And it's definitely an overcrowded field. If, If you just go into Silicon Valley, or any medical school, people spend years just doing research. Investors are just looking for that next biomedical device technology that you know, will save lives or bring new advancement.
1: Well, no, um, that's exactly
0: that's exactly right. And I think if
1: I were to give advice to anybody today, I would say if you're looking to get into healthcare technology, which is the new world, I would go into coding, software engineering. Um, if you're looking to go into the sciences, I would go into research um, and have that in your background. You can always go into business, the business side, but the background, the... Um, your undergraduate degrees you have to have something that people believe that you've done in my day you didn't not only did you not need it it didn't exist but in today's world you've got to have a background in one of those areas to be taken seriously um and i have to say i have i had the amazing good fortune of meeting the the venture capitalists they funded companies that we started a man named Arthur Rock, who was considered the father of VC, Bob Noyce, who founded um, Intel. Those were those were real venture capitalists because they were working. They knew how to run a business, and they 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 put their money into the human being, not, not necessarily the technology or the science. Today's world is very different. The venture capitalists take the majority of your company, and they really don't care about the human being as much as they care about what they're investing in. It's a very different world today. That's why it's important that young people going into this field have a background in something, coding, engineering,
0: research, um, medicine. I agree with that so much. And you're such a passionate person. And clearly, you you have been blessed in terms of being successful in most of the endeavors, wherever you had this passion and energy, you just created something new and did something incredible with it for. That's
1: that's true. And I think I, I I'm glad you said that because I guess what I, I really want to say to anybody listening is besides the fact that you have to have the background in whatever the area is, man, you got to have a passion today because you know, it everything is against us out in the world of, of, um, business of any kind and so passion and determination and tenacity are three most important keys to for anybody to have to move forward in in building a business in, in developing something new you know um, in something important You has
0: got to have that passion and determination yes and you have passion also in the arts. And I think it's so unusual because when you go to college, you either get a bachelor's in science or in arts, they're completely separated. And you are talented in both areas and you're passionate about both. How did you get into live theater and musicals and plays and Broadway? And then do you feel like they're connected in your mind? Well, that's a good question. Let me just First
1: of all, let me tell you that I refer to theatrical endeavors on Broadway or wherever it is in the world as my masochistic passion, because (laughs) it really is a very difficult world and you have absolutely no control. Um, But I'll tell you, I never got an undergraduate degree when I was young. I went back to Smith College. As an adult, actually, I was 50 when I went back to Smith College. That's where I studied my Russian literature, and that's when I adopted Yuri, and that's when I met your fabulous family, your father and your mother, they're amazing. Um, So I didn't have that structure. I went where my heart took me, and my heart was in healthcare. I mean, with ultrasound, we saved lives. We literally saved people's lives. And so and so with with MRI Um, and so with these Western medical clinics, I watched people dying in Vietnam and saved their life by taking them to a hospital in Thailand. You know, so when you have that, that just becomes a passion. That is a a gift beyond a gift. And when my heart feels that I go forward and there you were. I was in England and I saw a play that I loved. I had no idea what I was talking about. This was in the 80s, 88 actually, and I you know, I said to my then husband, um, okay, I want to take that to Broadway, not knowing what I was talking about. I did find out later that you can't just take a show to Broadway, especially that show it was 40 people, but I met a gentleman named Jerry Minskoff who was a fabulous man and he taught me theater. And he said, if you'll be an angel and invest in a couple of shows, I'll introduce you and teach you, and, and he did. And that's how I became involved with theater in the early, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. And I've just, once it's in my blood, I don't know about others, but once, I can say once it was in your blood, I, I don't know how you get it out. When that curtain goes up, after all the work you've put into it, um, at the sense of pride, There isn't a day, and I've been doing this almost 30 years, there isn't a day on a show that I love, that I've worked on, uh, and the key word is that I love, (laughs) that I don't just cry when that curtain goes up because of all the work that went into it and the beauty you see on the stage. So it's just a passion. And I I can't, again, in today's world, if you want to get into it, find a producer you like. I'm always bringing on interns and trying to teach them find a producer that you like and then um, learn from them like I did from Jerry Minskoff I I don't know how else there's no requirement of education that's going to take you to success in theater you you can learn everything and you should always have an undergraduate degree in something in today's world or even a master's but it's also, that is a gut instinct on what you want to do on the stage.
0: Cool, so can you take us through what it looks like to produce a show, to direct a show? Like, what's, what do you do on a day-to-day basis to get a show on stage, to get those curtains opened? Okay, well, let me
1: just start with the fact that I'm working with a really phenomenal director right now on a musical called Marie, which is an extraordinary musical that I'm very proud of. It's the story of Edgar Edgar Degas and his, and how he came to sculpt the, st- the Little Dancer statue. It's actually her story, Marie Van Gothen, um, and how she came to be, and the most famous ballerina in the world because she's the statue of the Little Dancer. Um, and I'm working with a, a director called Susan Stroman. She's very famous and she's had major hits. And the um, composer and lyricists are Steve, Stephen Flattery and Lynn Ahrens, who have also had major hits. And together the three of them will tell you, and it's true, any show that goes up on a Broadway stage, especially a, a musical, is a miracle. It is absolutely a miracle. Because what you go through to get it up is, it's hard. So from the beginning, you find a project that you like. Either you see it in some small little tiny theater or you've hired a composer and and book writer to to write an idea. And that can take anywhere from two years to eight years, depending on how long it takes to really develop what you want. Um, Through that process, you put on you being the producer. The producer is responsible for hiring the director, the composer, lyricist, book writer uh, and then working in conjunction with them to create that which you're creating. Uh, with Little Dancer I saw it at the Kennedy Center in, I'm sorry it's actually called Marie now, I saw it at the Kennedy Center and loved it in 2014, met with Stro, and we decided to bring it forward and we had we have since had two readings. The book has been reworked about eight times. We have recast the show several times. And um, and every producer does that along the way on musicals. Uh, and then just in February of this year, we took it to a, a wonderful theater in Seattle called the Fifth Avenue Theater, put it up to see what the audience response was, to see whether we'd have to change more or whether we're ready for Broadway. Uh, meanwhile, the entire creative team was hired by the director, uh, but the producer negotiates the contracts with the general manager. And so the workload is about 24 7. It's almost like starting, and here's what I think is the comparison to healthcare every single musical or play is its own little startup company. It's exactly the same. You come into a company, you hire your creative team to build what you plan. You come into a production, you hire your creative team to build out what you plan. Um, and they're so they really are in many ways connected. You're, a, you're an entrepreneur every time you do a show. And by the way, our audience in Seattle went beyond my expectations in our... our um, Sales went from almost nothing to 300 percent over the first weekend and continued to grow like that for the four weeks we were there. And um, it was an astounding hit. There it has nothing to do with Broadway. <laughs> Broadway is its own entity, but there it was a huge hit. So it is going to come to Broadway, and it'll come in a year because now we're in line for a theater. Um, but that's what we do. The director takes on the role of Of working with the writers they work it and work it and work it they work the book they work the direction they work what it's gonna look like they hire the right lighting the right set designers the right costume designers in our case we have because it's Susan Stroman um, and you know her from so many things contact the producers young Frankenstein um, it goes on and on and on She's done everything, and I've worked with her before on Music Man. Anyway, she um, hired William Ivy Long, who's a, a gift in the world of costume. It, it was just, it's a beautiful show. The lighting is gorgeous. Videos are gorgeous. So it becomes a joint effort. It's like the CEO of a company working with your COO and your CT of technology. It's a very similar entity type of business.
0: I really love that. I love that parallel in your life where you're ultimately doing the exact same pattern of development, except they're in complete opposite, if I may say so, areas. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating. So besides for waiting for a theater on Broadway, what else separates a show? That always changes. Some, sometimes you do a reading and
1: then you do have to accommodate for a Broadway stage. You always have to accommodate for a Broadway stage. In our case at Fifth Avenue, we basically um, capitalized the show to go to Broadway because we knew it would go. Um, we don't know what theater we, we will get, but we do know we'll get a theater. Uh, but we made the, everything except for the, the deck, which is what has to fit into the Broadway theater. Broadway ready. So the costumes, the lighting, the videos, the casting, the direction, the choreography, all of that is done for Broadway. And what we'll have to accommodate when we're told what theater we get is the size of the deck and the flies and what we need to do to make the production happen on the stage. And that we really won't know until we know what theater we're going into. you do have to accommodate for Broadway but the biggest problem right now is the economy is good and there are there are for every theater available there's a lineup of 3 to 12 shows waiting for that theater so you have to have something special we have something special we know the audience loves our show that's special Um, we have a phenomenal creative team that's special We actually have a a star in a sort of way. She's the principal dancer at City Ballet named Tyler Peck. And we have a great um, gentleman singing the Degas part, which is, uh, um, well, I'm not supposed to say, never mind, because he hasn't signed his contract yet, but he's going to (laughs) come. So um, anyway, we've got all of the needs that we need. We just need to wait till and this is the saddest part of theater it was never like this before but we have to wait till the show closes and so poor producers are out there you're like vultures waiting to see what's going to close hoping something's going to close i hate that part of it but it's the real estate
0: wow i didn't realize i thought there was just they had their contracts and then when that would end i didn't think that it would it's it depends on the economy. Uh huh. That's so interesting.
1: It depends on the um, the weekly take, actually. So if a show is doing well, the theater owners are not going to kick them out. If the show is doing badly and they go below their minimum, they can leave. Got it. Or or they can run out of individuals to see the show, and then they can leave. Um, if you look at Phantom, it's never left. You know, <laughs> it's just there, and so has Lion King. So it's really um, uh, dependent on who sees the show and the amount of tickets sold.
0: Wow. It's really tough because the dancers and everyone involved, all the artists, all the hired staff, they, they could just be fired without any notice. Am I right?
1: No. Yes. Yes and no. You, you have to post. You post. A, a, a producer will post. And they have to give them one week's notice. Sometimes the producer's kind and gives two weeks' notice. It all depends on the economics of the show. Got it. If, if you're losing money weekly, they're going to post sooner. You know, it's all economic, economically driven on stage.
0: That's really brutal on everyone's it end. <laughs> very, <laughs> it represents, honestly, what the world of entertainment and performing arts is all about. I mean, even if you do make it, you're still, you know, a week-to-week job, even after Mm -hmm. all the effort and work you put into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unless you know you have a hit like Hamilton, then Then you're good to go. You know you've got the next 10 years in a theater. (laughs) That's true. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. I feel like our audience is really excited. I'm very excited to hear the inside scoop of what really goes on to get a show on Broadway. It's something. It's really... The difference in healthcare startup companies and
1: um, is we're not dependent at all on the public. Um, As far as, you know, on Broadway, you're dependent on these critics that you have opening night and the critics where they used to be able to close you overnight, they can't close you overnight anymore, thank God. They don't have the the esteem of the public that they used to have and they can't make you either. Um, many a time our critics have just loved certain shows and those shows still have never made it. So the critics are not as strong as they used to be but they still have power. And whereas in healthcare, you, you just make that product as good as you can and you make sure that you're hitting the right audience so to speak and helping people with their healthcare problems be it illness or be it wellness and so you're not as dependent on one person saying okay I didn't like it I was in a bad mood that night you know what I mean it's, it's a very different problem
0: yeah which really goes to that where you said that your, your passion for the arts is the masochism the masochism exactly and it's so true because we talk about on the show so often how if you are practical or if you know how difficult it is to earn a living being in the arts or in the performing arts and if you had one sense of practicality you'd, you'd yeah, exactly. stay far away from this so clearly yeah, I- anyone here is super passionate and can't live without this in their lives
1: no, it's it it is a masochistic passion. You know, you've met my husband Tom, and he's very practical and very sane. And he keeps saying to me, "I love theater. Why are you doing this?" <laughs> it's just why are you doing this? I don't know. It's just there in my blood. It's, you can't. That curtain goes up, and I, you know, I. It's a gift that you can't get anywhere else. It's very interesting. Whereas in in healthcare, it's I use my mind and. And not that I don't use my mind on theater, but it's 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 a different kind of mind. It's it's a practicality that I have to use to build a company, and it's a passion that I have to use to build a play, a, a musical, or a play.
0: Right. And I know you've won over sixteen Tony Awards, and you've been nominated a bunch of times as well. Well, my to- I
1: personally have won three Tony Awards. My shows have garnered have garnered hundreds of Tony Tony's if it's lighting or set design or actors so the shows themselves are in 19 in 2000 we had had 28 Tony Awards now I think we've probably up to I'm up to I think my shows have probably got garnered maybe a hundred Tony Awards I'm guessing I should count it one day <laughs> I on my desk have three hopefully a couple more will come my way but that's that's just me, that's the producing, that means it won Best Play or Best Musical. And, and there's, there's a difference too, I, I guess I should explain it. As a lead producer on a Broadway musical or a Broadway play, you are responsible for everything, including losses, you're on the line for risk. And so being a lead producer really is a masochistic passion because if something doesn't happen, you gotta write a check. Um, for it uh, the individuals that come on as below that first line and they've written checks they're, they call themselves producers and they are because they've helped get the show up but they're not on the line for risk it's much more of a endeavor to put your money where you really feel passion do you know what I mean but you're not a lead producer and leading a show and I've done both I do both Leading a show is a very frightening, very difficult, and very brave thing to do. And any lead producer that does that, I just, I well, I get along with all of them, but I really respect all of us because it is scary. You know, you really are on the line for risk. And you have to really believe in what you're doing, so.
0: And it shows through, and there are other parts of your life where your passion comes across and your belief. And you've mentioned seeing that ultrasound as one of the first person out there who's ever experienced that, that you believe in God and you've done some incredible things that are not necessarily passion or health related where in a way you are a hand of God. (laughs) So and that's how I know you. Um, and you've been involved in a couple of orphanages, but the one I'm close to is you founded the the orphanage that's in Moscow, and I'm friends with a lot of the children who are now adults who've who've grew up there. And um, yeah, that's and- my
1: greatest that's my greatest gift. And and you know you know how it happened, don't you? Do you know how it happened? How this all happened?
0: So I don't think I have the entire story, but I'd oh. love for you to share it. Oh my God, it's your father. Um, So what happened is I wanted to, you know, I had
1: been giving money out of my, I have a a foundation called Noah's Ark. And I had been giving money to some of the orphanage around Eastern Europe. But, you know, I I never knew whether you could help a child or not. So I decided to adopt a child. Um, I'd had three of my own and grandkids. But I accidentally bumped into Yuri, who's my son. He was two years old in a orphanage, one of the uh, state-run orphanages in Moscow, which I don't know if you've been to them, but they were hell in the 90s, and I hear they haven't gotten any better. Um, there's hundreds of kids per orphanage. Anyway, somehow in there, I found Yuri, and I went to adopt him, and I was introduced to your father, uh, Rabbi Goldschmidt. and your father and your mother took me through the process of getting Yuri out. Um, and they, you know, I saw their school and I saw your congregation and, you know, I was just kind of blown away. But I remember saying to Pincus, okay, I have friends now that I have Yuri that really want to adopt a child and they'd love a Jewish child. And your dad said, uh, well, wait a minute. We can't, they don't really let, um, there's, we can't tell you who is Jewish, and they often can't get into the state-run orphanages. And I started looking into them, and there were no. In the state-run orphanages, you couldn't find um, Muslims, color, black, you know, Jews, whatever. So, of course, in my cavalier way, um, not knowing your dad that well, I said, you know, we have to start one for kids that can't get into orphanages. Let's do it. I'll do it with you. He said, okay, and you guys did it. Your mother and father did it, and you found Svetlana and um, oh God, what was his wonderful name? Rafi. Rafi. Oh, I loved Rafi. And we put together the orphanage, and I started funding it, and then everybody else came on board and helped fund it. And those that first fifty kids were, or seventy kids were just—they were amazing. I there, I know they're all grown up now, and I've met some of the kids over the years. I do want to get back there and see the new group that's in. But to have a family for little Jewish children um, as part of the Jewish community, as part of the school that your mother uh, developed, as part of the family with Rafi and Svetlana, these kids were just, not were they lucky, I just think God took care of them. These are kids that have survived and have good lives. And They're part of a community, they're part of our community, the Jewish community. I couldn't believe in the 90s it was hard if you were a Jew anywhere in the world. It just, I couldn't believe it was still going on. I was so taken
0: aback by it. So I was glad to put my mark there
1: and help it. I'm still
0: glad. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to thank you so much on just behalf of children out there who you, you really, I feel like nothing I could say could actually validate or express what kind of gift you gave so many people who were just children at the time and who still are children right now.
1: Thank you. but you know, like adopting my son, um I remember thinking, well, I've got the wherewithal to give him a good life. Um, I'm going to adopt him. It'll be good for him, but you want to know something, Francesca. I, Every day, he's 24 now, and every day I look at him and I think, okay, wait, I didn't give him a gift. He is my gift. That was my gift. I mean, to have someone as wonderful as he is, as hopeful as he is, uh, it's just a gift. So I feel the same way about the home with the kids, and when I see somebody now and then, it's just, I have to get over there and see them, I do have to do that. Um, It's just a gift. You know, it's a, it's a real present for me, but I'm happy to get the gift. And look at what your parents and you guys have done. Those kids used to come to your house for Shabbat. They used to spend the night. I mean, they were part of a huge community. And I, isn't that what we all
0: are? We Jews are part of a huge community worldwide. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so beautiful to connect this all these three major parts of your life: your passion for children and Jewish children, and the continuation of the Jewish people. Your passion for healthcare and the arts. Did I encompass it all, <laughs> or is there more? You got it. That's
1: it. It's saving lives in healthcare, making it simpler. It's theater, my masochistic passion, and it's children. Everywhere, children. worldwide. Children who are suffering—they shouldn't be suffering in today's world. They just shouldn't. So yes, I know. And Jews—I'm very—I want our 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 community, our tribe to exist, you know. And it's—you know, there's so many forces that don't want it. And I'm there. I want it. So I do what I can.
0: So I'd love to close with just. Any messages that you have that you'd love to share or something that you think is so important for young women or not so young women to hear? I, I think especially, and you mentioned this earlier, like when you started doing this, it was especially hard for women to get into these areas or be in position of power. And you, you went there and you used your power for good and you created new opportunities and new worlds, someone with real vision, what what can you, if you can summarize something for all of us out here, what would that be?
1: Okay, let me see if I can put it into a few words. I can't, it's a little bit longer. When I started in business, there was women could not really own their own businesses. I couldn't get a loan, I was divorced. When Al and I started Diasonics, as much as I loved our venture capitalist, Arthur Rock, he said to me, this is 1977, he said, you know, you can't really hold a title in this company, and you certainly can't be on the board, you're the wife. Wow. And so I, <laughs> 77. So I um, said, okay, I got it. And so I just did everything basically behind the scenes. But diasonics would not be what it is today without me, even though I didn't have the quote-unquote title. So I had to swallow a lot of pride. I don't think you have to do that as much today, but you still are, we still are up against those forces. And women anything I can say to young women, and especially older women, women who are in the empty nest and want to start over, figure your passion, understand what you really love the most, swallow whatever you have to swallow at first, um, and go to where it is, and then work hard. It does come back to you. You know, it really does. I mean, it's easy for me to say, Young women go do software. Um, let's see, young women go do software or or even technology. Get get into that field and you'll grow in it. But there's also this opening for women who have not got that education who are needed because we're all so much smarter as we get older. So find the passion and use that that ability and you know go to where you want to go and just. Swallow what you have to do and go do it. It does, you You, you can grow in it, and we are so needed. Women of um, experience, is that the good word, are needed in our world today, very much so. So I recommend anyone that has anything that they want to do, if you have a chance to get educated young, do it, and then grow in that field. If you're older and you're not in school, or you've already got your education, just go and pound those doors till you get a chance and then continue to work
0: beautiful i really love that thank you (laughs) i really admire you and your work thank you honey thank you i appreciate that actually i really do and if you have been enjoying this podcast please make sure to write a review and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out as well see you next time